0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we are calling this week's show Looking Back, because basically what we're doing is we're taking a bit of a pause and giving another listen to some of our favorite Metro Connection stories from the past few months. We'll revisit our conversation with a woman named Sarah Gray, who shared a very personal story about grief and letting go.
1: It felt like... You know, throwing a football, like a Hail Mary pass, into the universe... And just wondering, like, for two and a half years, did anyone
0: catch it? We'll spend time with the stonemason, who's worked at D.C.'s National Cathedral for nearly 30
2: years and is helping to rebuild and repair the structure he holds so dear. We're almost 300 feet up in the air, and look at all the beautifully carved little angels.
0: Plus, we'll take a second look at the brave new world of curbside composting.
3: The reason we do composting is that it is a, it's like a gateway drug for sustainability. It touches everything. It's in your kitchen. It's part of every meal you create for your family. It's like fundamental to how
0: you do things. First, though, we'll travel to Deal Island on Maryland's eastern shore, where oyster season just wrapped up at the start of the month. Since the end of the 1800s, watermen on the Chesapeake Bay have harvested oysters with these quick, nimble boats known as skipjacks. And the Chesapeake's commercial skipjack fleet used to number in the hundreds. Nowadays, though, it's down to six. Or... Five, rather. Should I come under there too? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Since one of these boats, one under the boat here, a sleek yeah. white fifty-footer named Catherine, I'm trying not to hit my head, has been out of commission since 2011.
4: So here's what's going on. Yeah. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Everything uh, below the waterline is being replaced, including the standard uh, standing frames. Like all these frames will be replaced, and you can see. The new ones that we're adding in right now.
0: Eastern Shore native Stony Whitelock captains the Skipjack, Catherine.
4: This is part of my heritage, and this is where I came from, and this is what my family did. Uh, let's see, my great-great-grandfather was a Skipjack captain. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, and now my son's doing it.
0: On Labor Day weekend 2011, Catherine was damaged in the annual skipjack race when her port, or her left side, struck a buoy.
4: We had a stiff breeze that day, and this boat likes a stiff breeze. But uh, we hit up in the forward port side, and uh, we were taking on water and that's a whole nother story.
0: A whole nother story that involved Catherine's two dozen passengers using five-gallon buckets to bail out the water before she was towed back to land and moved here, inside this massive blue-and-white tent near the bay. I have to say, it's pretty amazing to be, I've never stood inside the bottom of a boat. Like, this This would normally be underwater where yeah. we're standing right this now. This is
4: the underwater part, Yeah. And that underwater
0: part is pretty busted up, I gotta say. Though it's come a long way since that fateful Labor Day weekend. Thanks in no small part to a guy I visited in the nearby town of St. Michael's.
5: I am Michael Vlahovic, founding director of the nonprofit organization Coastal Heritage Alliance.
0: The Coastal Heritage Alliance is all about promoting the heritage of commercial fishermen. So Vlahovic has been instrumental in raising money to restore the skipjack Catherine. And as a master shipwright, he's also been doing actual restoration work himself through a grant that's funding 240 hours of labor.
5: That means staff and tools and materials three days a month. And that's the time when we solicit volunteerism and that's when we get interns down from the local college. People are welcome at any time but those are really designated days.
0: I wasn't in town on one of those designated days. But Michael Velahovich's son, Anthony, has helped out on several of them. And he says when he first saw the inside frame of the skipjack... I hardly even call it wood. It's more like mulch. Because here's the thing. Catherine was built in 1901, okay? And as Michael Velahovich points out, her fellow remaining skipjacks are similarly long in the tooth. I mean, skipjacks aren't supposed to last hundreds of years,
5: right? Well, no, no. They were, they were never expected to last this long and... Catherine, like all the other Skipjacks, have received repair work in the past.
0: So actually, even before the Labor Day incident, Catherine wasn't exactly in tip-top shape. Like Vlahovic says, she'd had some work done here and there. At one point, the chesapeake Bay Skipjack fleet was actually in line to receive $50,000 apiece from the state of Maryland. But when those funds ran out earlier than expected, Vlahovic, who'd spent his life building and fishing on boats, stood up and said, you know what?
5: If the state can't do it? I'll do it. And that's when and why I founded Coastal Heritage Alliance.
0: Another source of funds for the skipjack, Catherine, is a little less official and a little less grown up, I guess you could say. But the way Captain Stony Whitelock sees it, it's no less important. Wh- which one did your granddaughter do? Mm,
4: this one here.
0: We're in Captain Stoney's living room, where you'll find about a dozen children's drawings framed and hung on the wall. They are so sweet. They're so colorful. And most of them say, yeah, get what they all say, get well, Catherine.
4: Get well, Catherine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Captain Stoney's granddaughter's then second grade class drew these get well pictures of Catherine just after Labor Day 2011. Some of them are quite
4: the artists. Right.
0: And lots of imagination. And some of them, she's brown. And some yep. of them, she's bright green. Yep. Over there, she's red.
4: That's right. <laughs> That's right.
0: All these images were eventually made into T-shirts, which are now for sale.
4: Half of the proceeds go to the PTA at the local Deal Island School, and uh, we take the other half to work on the Catherine.
0: Captain Stoney expects Catherine to be ship-shaped by next year, ideally in time for the next skipjack race.
4: When we get back, uh, we'll plan on winning the race. In the meantime,
0: though, he says he's touched to see so many people lend a buck or a hand or a crayon-drawn get-well card in support of Catherine. Though he also says he isn't surprised.
4: Just everybody that got on the boat to take a sail, they just left everything ashore. I mean, you could tell... They were brighter when they left and then than they were when they came aboard. And it, it's it's true. This this boat's got its own soul.
0: And soon enough, he says, she'll have a brand new, lovingly repaired body to match that more than one hundred year old soul. On Sunday, May 26th, Captain Stoney, the Coastal Heritage Alliance, and other members of the community are hosting an event to honor the Skipjack Catherine. It'll be at Scott's Cove Marina in Chance, Maryland, and there will be live music, watermen, storytellers, and a fish fry lunch. For more information and to see photos of Catherine before and after the accident, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to head to D.C. now for the story of a woman named Sarah Gray. Sarah talked with Metro Connections' Emily Berman back in February for a show we called Letting Go. I have to say, we got a lot of feedback on this story because it's about a kind of letting go no parent ever wants to face. Saying goodbye to a child.
6: Back in 2009, Sarah was 35 years old and eight weeks pregnant when she found out she'd be having twins. And I just was
1: like laughing and Ross was like staring straight ahead like, like, oh my gosh, are you serious? I think I was more excited and he was more scared.
6: A month later at her 12-week checkup, Sarah laid on the examining table where a technician rubbed an ultrasound wand over her belly. Her eyes were fixed on the black and white images of her babies.
1: So you can see, you know, little baby head and arms and legs and that kind of thing. It's
6: fun. The tech asked her to go empty her bladder, so she did. And when she came back, there was a doctor in the room.
1: And he looked at a few different things, and then he said, you know, one of your twins is fine, but I'm sorry to tell you, one of your twins has a lethal birth defect. And I think, I just sort of thought, I must have heard that wrong. And and I can show you a picture of what the sonograms looked like. So he said, you can see this one baby's skull is round, just like that. And your other baby's skull is bumpy.
6: It's called anencephaly, the doctor told her. That's Greek for without a brain. The skull didn't close properly in the early stages of development. And because of that, amniotic fluid was getting inside the skull and disintegrating the brain.
1: I think it was mostly shock. I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I don't smoke and I wasn't drinking. I took folic acid vitamins. So we asked can we do a selective termination on the sick baby? And he said no, because the twins are identical, so it was kind of just too risky.
6: Sarah and Ross, her husband, left the appointment in a haze. It was the beginning of a very stressful pregnancy.
7: If
8: people saw that Sarah was pregnant, they'd be, you know, oh, great, you're pregnant, when are you due? And You don't want to almost burden them by telling them bad news.
1: It's like you can't even say what it is because it's so sad
6: as the months went by sarah shopped for one set of clothes one car seat
1: one crib one stroller all that
6: kind of stuff at the same time she was researching whether or not she could donate the baby's organs but it wasn't clear if anyone would want them Sarah's mom found one article online about a family in Alexandria whose baby had anencephaly. That family had donated the baby's liver cells for scientific research, so Sarah took that article to her next doctor's appointment.
1: And she looked into it, and she's like, you know, we don't do this a lot, but you're right, you know, we can do this. We had, yeah, we had maybe four days where Ross and I slept in the hospital with Thomas.
8: I remember holding him at the time, and, you know, he just seemed such a friendly little guy. He just wanted, he just wanted to be cuddled, so there's, there's not really too much else you can do.
6: They took Thomas home, and within a day, he started having seizures. He was wheezing and had really heavy breathing. And the hospice
1: nurse came over, and she sort of looked at him, and she was like, you know, this this is what they call end-of-life breathing. This is the end for him and we said a little prayer over him, and I called the Washington Regional Transplant Community, and they sent a van over to come and pick him up and take him to the hospital right away to get his organs.
6: Who's that? Thomas. Who's Thomas? Sarah's son, Callum, the healthy twin, is now three years old. He's looking at a photo album of hospital pictures of him and his twin brother, brother.
1: Thomas. Yeah, Thomas gone. Yeah? Where did
6: he go? Let's go. In grief counseling, Sarah and Ross met people who'd gone through similar experiences. Some spoke of how they'd saved lives by donating their loved ones' organs. Thomas's organs weren't big enough for transplant and had gone to scientific research.
1: Over the course of two years, I started feeling kind of jealous of these people who had donated their loved ones' organs because a lot of them got to meet the recipient. What if they got it and they were like, oh, I don't really need these. I'm throwing this in the garbage.
6: Sarah asked the transplant organization for more information, and they told her what they knew. Thomas's cord blood went to Duke University. His
1: liver cells went to a company called Cytonet in Durham, North Carolina.
6: And his eyes went to Harvard Medical School.
1: It it didn't even occur to me that I could actually go there until I went to Boston. I had a business trip. I had a conference there. So when I got there, I thought, this is my last chance while I'm here to do this.
6: She called the front desk of Harvard's Eye Institute and asked if she could have a tour of the building. They said yes, and the next morning she arrived early to take pictures of the outside of the building. She put a few brochures in her purse and waited for her tour guide, Carolyn.
1: Carolyn took me for a walk through the lab, and there was, you know, petri dishes and refrigerators and posters of eyes. And she introduced me to a guy named Dr. Zisky, And I remember he was just sort of eating his lunch at his desk, and she brought me over, and he looked up, and she said, you know, this is Sarah Gray, and her son was a donor here. And he just sort of looked at me like, oh, my gosh.
6: The lab, Carolyn said, had never had a donor come to visit before.
1: I felt really emotional, like I was about to cry just meeting him. I got the feeling like he was emotional, too. Like, you care enough about what I'm doing to come here.
6: Dr. Ziski thanked her for her donation and asked if there was anything she wanted to know.
1: I said, how many eyes do you order in a year?
6: He said his group orders 10, and that infant eyes are the most rare and valuable for research.
1: He asked me when my son died. I told him it was a couple years ago, and he said, you know, your son's eyes could still be here right now. It was just a really meaningful, really good feeling to know that I met his recipient, really. It almost felt like visiting our son at college or something. It felt like he was, like, introducing us to his friends and his colleagues and his co-workers. That, you know, my son is okay. The, just the grief was gone.
6: On her way out of town, Sarah bought a toddler-sized Harvard t-shirt for Callum and felt, for the first time in quite a while, an immense sense of peace. I'm Emily Berman.
0: Time for a break, but when we get back, green living in the urban jungle.
3: We have a robust rat problem in our alley. And the last thing I was going to do was put a active compost pile in the backyard.
0: That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we are looking back and revisiting some of the stories that have really stuck with us over the past few months. You may recall that back in February, right around Valentine's Day, we did a show about chemistry. And yeah, of course, we talked a lot about chemistry of the lovey-dovey, pounding heart and sweaty palms variety. But we also explored chemistry of a whole other sort. Jonathan Wilson took us to a science lab here in D.C. where a Howard University professor and his students are using chemistry to improve drugs that could save lives across the world.
9: Professor Joseph Fortunak empties a bag of round tablets onto a desk in a basement chemistry lab at Howard University. The tablets are chalky white with little beige speckles. The bulbous little white discs are a lot larger than, say, the generic aspirin you can get at a local drugstore. But they still look small enough to swallow without much effort. These
10: are tablets of
9: amodiaquine. Before we get to what exactly a mediaquin is, consider the professor himself, the longish disheveled white hair and mustache, the v-neck sweater, the deliberate exact sentences that spill effortlessly out of him. This is a man who was born to teach chemistry. Tiffany Ellison, one of his Ph.D. students, says Fortunak is famous for scribbling impromptu chemistry lessons on napkins and paper towels.
4: You have to be ready to do chemistry everywhere. You have to be ready for a presentation at all times, in the middle of the hallway or anything.
9: And yet, as the professor tells it, he struggled mightily in his first college chemistry course.
10: I was absolutely certain as a freshman at Purdue University that I was going to flunk chemistry and I'd have to go back to work in the steel mill.
9: But Fortunak says he tested well enough to get into an honors course.
10: And they let us do whatever we want, in honors chemistry lab. I convinced my lab mate that we should do brain surgery on cockroaches. And I guess that's what turned me into a chemist.
9: He went on to get his Ph.D. in organic chemistry. That led to a 21-year career working for three huge pharmaceutical companies, where he helped shepherd 15 new drugs to market. But it was only after more than two decades as a high-level chemist working for Big Pharma that Fortunak made the transition to what he says is his dream job, teaching and researching at a university.
10: I came to Howard University because it was clear to me that Big Pharma doesn't actually have the job or the mission of making certain that medicines are available for everybody in the world.
9: So back to those round white tablets, a mediaquin. Amodiaquin is a drug used to combat malaria. Malaria isn't common in the U.S. or Europe, and so there isn't much incentive for Western companies to spend money and time researching new drugs. Imadiquin, for instance, has been around for decades. Most of the world's supply of anti-malarial medicine is manufactured in India and China, but the greatest need is in poorer African countries such as Nigeria, where some estimates figure that a child dies every minute from malaria.
10: So the paradigm that we're living in now is that in approximately the year 2000, the the United Nations and the World Health Organization decided that they would undertake a a huge program to create a system in which medicines would be donated to people who otherwise don't have access. And let's call those low- and middle-income countries. Well, that system wasn't meant to last forever.
9: Fortunac says while the donation program has put all sorts of life-saving drugs into the hands of people who need them, it simply isn't a sustainable model.
10: Well, now think about it. There is a pharmaceutical industry in Africa, but if you're donating medicines into Africa, your donations are actually militating towards crushing the growth and the development of that regional pharmaceutical industry.
9: And that's where Fortunac comes in. He spent the past eight years at Howard figuring out how to make common anti-malarial and anti-HIV drugs in cheaper, greener, and more efficient ways. He says African countries generally don't have the robust petrochemical industry from which Big Pharma obtains solvents needed in the production of medicine.
10: Can we challenge ourselves to make chemistry so that we can manufacture medicines using the materials that are available in the markets where we would like regional production to occur.
9: Fortunak and his students and colleagues are challenging themselves and the rest of the world because they're getting results. He says he's proudest of the work they've done on a couple of HIV drugs. The antiretroviral tenofovir disoproxil fumarate now costs about a fourth of what it cost when it was first launched by drug companies in India in 2007. That's thanks to refinement in the manufacturing process discovered by Fortunac students. Efavirenz, a drug that Fortunac himself helped bring to market in 1998, now cost about 11 percent of what it cost when it was first introduced in India in 2005. And the
10: great thing about that is the volume of that drug in low and middle income countries in 2012 is 750 metric tons. That represents well over three million people taking that drug, when in 2005 that was essentially zero.
9: So how did Fortunak, who had opportunities to end up at a deep-pocketed Ivy League research institution, choose the historically respected but relatively underfunded Howard University? Fortunak says bigger universities were excited about his ideas, but were mostly focused on how much money they could make with new patents. At Howard, the emphasis was different. Bob Ketchings said to me... Dr. Fortunac, we're not a rich
10: university at Howard, but tell me something. How many lives could we save?
9: Fortunac says there is much more work to do, especially when it comes to improving access to drugs for diabetes and heart disease and cancer, diseases that kill more people than HIV and malaria, but don't, as Fortunac says, have the public relations behind them. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Mm-hmm.
0: turn now to a story we brought you back in January, one that received a ton of responses from listeners all across the D.C. area. It's about the phenomenon of curbside composting. And as Jacob Fenston tells us, two local jurisdictions are taking a chance on the idea that curbside composting not only could save the environment, but it could save money, too.
11: A heap of decomposing food in your
3: backyard Compost piles can be smelly and vermin-infested. We have a robust rat problem in our alley, and the last thing I was going to do was put an active compost pile in the backyard.
11: Jeremy Brasowski lives in Mount Pleasant. He's into food, urban agriculture, sustainability... But composting at home seemed like a
3: problem. So I was looking for a solution for my family, and we couldn't come up with one other than get it off-site. Getting it off-site turned into a business. Soon, he was hauling tons of
11: other people's food scraps across the city. It's called Compost Cab. Customers pay Brasowski $8 a week to pick up their food scraps and deliver them to a local farm to be
3: composted. The reason we do composting is that it's like a gateway drug for sustainability, and just as when you get into the habit of throwing away a glass jar in the recycling, and you would never think to throw that in the garbage. Uh, The same becomes true of banana peels and apple cores, and it is very hard to stop.
11: There seems to be a pent-up demand for this compost pickup service. Over the past two and a half years, brusowski has gone from having just a few dozen customers in the district to hundreds all around the region. Copycat businesses have popped up locally and around the country. But the business's success could actually hint at its demise. Municipal composting is coming. Brasowski says eventually cities and counties will pick up food scraps just like recycling and trash. But that's OK with him. In fact, he's willing to help out those future competitors.
6: Um, I'm wondering if the pail has to be next to the trash bins. Like, will the town just University
11: Park in Prince or George's, George's or County was one of the first local communities to try out curbside composting with a pilot program launched in 2011. So it's a five-gallon bucket with um, a sealable lid, so it means it's airtight. So raccoons, nothing can get into it. Smells don't get out of it. Chuck Wilson, who coordinated the program, is talking to residents who've recently signed up. For the first year, the town partnered with Compost Cab, which picked up the food scraps for 50 families. The results have been amazing. On average, it's eight pounds of food scraps per week per home, So over the course of a year, those 50 houses kept, you know, several tons of food out of the local landfill. Grant funding for the pilot ended, so the town government is taking over, expanding collection to 150 homes or about one in five residents.
1: So we keep ours right outside the back door with the um, recycling and trash.
11: Catherine Donahoe was part of the pilot program. She says she'd always thought composting would be nice, but...
1: We're a busy family, Both of us are working. We've got kids. We're running around getting people to schools and daycares each day. Um, This is about what I can handle um, and feel like I'm contributing.
11: Composting is good for the environment because when food scraps end up in a landfill, they release methane, a greenhouse gas 20 times worse than carbon dioxide in terms of its effect on climate change. Composting could also potentially save money if jurisdictions end up paying less to landfills. Currently, the county tipping fee for the landfill is $59 a ton. We estimate that, uh, well, let me think about that. Mickey Beal is director of public works for University Park. He says the cost savings initially will be nominal, about $2,000. Which equates to about 30 to 35 tons uh, over the course of a year that would be diverted from the landfill. Beal says the biggest challenge to starting curbside pickup was finding somewhere to take the food scraps.
7: So here we go.
11: One way to deal with that problem is to build your own composting facility.
5: Composting facility in progress. Gemma
11: Evans is the Howard County Recycling Coordinator. She's driving me around the county dump over hills of filled up landfill to what looks like a runway at a small airport.
5: So yeah, let's go have a look.
11: In 2011, the county started offering compost collection to 5,000 households. Currently, all that waste, about five tons a week, gets shipped to a commercial composter in Delaware. Evan says when this new facility opens up, the county could see big savings, possibly allowing the program to expand.
5: I'm hoping that we'll be able to expand countywide, but that's not my decision to make. That's uh, above my head.
11: Lately, there's a lot of local interest in composting, but the East Coast is still behind the curve. San Francisco started picking up curbside compost more than 15 years ago, followed by Seattle, Portland, Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas, and dozens of smaller towns. Evan says it's the future, but it also looks a little like the past.
5: You know, 100 years ago, people weren't throwing out as much stuff as they do now, not wasting as much food as, and other stuff that is wasted now. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll come back around.
11: I'm Jacob Fenston.
0: What do you think about curbside composting? Share your thoughts with us by sending an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at metro. So for the past few weeks, we've been bringing you a brand new series called Yesterday's Dropouts, where we hear what happens to people in the decades after they decide to leave school. Last week, we heard about the GED test and the people who choose to get a GED rather than a traditional high school diploma. Well, it turns out there are some pretty big changes coming up for the GED exam. And as special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza tells us, some teachers are worried the new test is being rolled
12: out far too quickly. <laughs> It's graduation day at Academy of Hope, an adult education center in Southeast D.C. Thirty-six smiling students in blue caps and gowns are celebrating. For these students, the GED certificate is much more than just a piece of paper. Just says that I'm not dumb.
4: This is for my mother. She's seen how hard a life I had, and she's going to cry more than anything.
12: Now I feel whole, I feel like it, it, it completed me. Of the approximately 450,000 people who passed the GED test in the U.S. last year, 500 were D.C. residents. But that number is expected to be far smaller next year, when the exam undergoes what some adult educators call a radical overhaul. Molly Broad is president of the American Council on Education, or ACE, which oversees the test. She prefers the term dramatic transformation.
0: The test is going to be better because we're raising the requirements.
12: The new GED test will be far more difficult, more emphasis on critical thinking, more questions on science, and more writing. Students will also need to have background knowledge, not just an understanding of the passage right in front of them. To help develop the test, the non-profit ACE partnered with the for-profit Pearson, an education company, C.T. Turner is with the GED testing service.
7: If we don't provide them something of value, we're setting them up for failure.
12: But for Leicester Johnson, who runs Academy of Hope, and for many other adult educators from across the country, the new test is a source of constant worry. Johnson says it takes almost two years for her students to prepare for the current GED test. With the increased difficulty, she expects they'll have to tack on another year of learning. She'll also have to move from a volunteer base of tutors to hiring eight professional teachers. The depth of knowledge required, we need subject area experts in the classroom. For us, that's a huge financial burden. That'll double her nonprofit's costs to $2 million. Educators also say they're frustrated because they don't know what the new test will look like. Apart from a few sample questions and some information on what will be measured, they say there are few practical resources available to help. Is there a diagnostic test available now for people to use?
7: Um, not yet.
12: Is there a practice or a readiness test?
7: There is a practice test that's coming out early summer.
12: And accommodations for students with learning disabilities? Turner says that information will come later. He dismisses complaints about the lack of clear information.
7: We have provided more information about this test earlier than we have any other GED test in our history.
12: Another change is the GED test will cost a lot more next year. And that'll affect students like Sharonda War, who's careful about every dollar. She's been a janitor and home caregiver before she became unemployed almost a year ago. I just turned 37 and it just hit me like, well, you're going to retire in like the next 20, 20 years and don't have anything. The test costs $50 now. Next year, it'll jump to $120. To put this in perspective, that's twice War's monthly subsidized rent. An unemployment check of $670 a month supports her and her four children. It absolutely frightens me. That's Valerie Ashley with Southeast Ministries, an adult education center in D.C. She says the new price tag will make it prohibitive for her students who are in the same circumstances as war. Ashley not only pays for the test when they take it, she also pays for bus tickets so her students can come to class.
8: Where do I find
12: the money to keep that going? Will I be able to support as many students? But C.T. Turner with the GED testing service calls the $120 rock-bottom pricing. He says the increased costs are because currently states just lease the exam.
7: They have to find someone to score the test, proctor the test, issue the transcript credential. All those things cost something.
12: He says the higher fee for the new test will cover all those costs. He suggests states ask private companies to pay for GED testing vouchers for students who can't afford the fee. But many states that subsidized the test for students in the past now have concerns about subsidizing a for-profit company – Last month, New York State announced it would drop the GED test as its high school equivalency exam and instead work with another company to create a cheaper alternative. Several other states are considering doing the same. The GED testing service is advertising one more change. Students will no longer be able to take a pencil and paper test. It'll be computerized.
3: Pointing and clicking answers,
10: dragging and dropping items, and basic typing ability.
12: Turner says these minimal computer skills are required for most applications and jobs. He says there are other advantages, being able to register anytime online, better test security, and an instant report.
7: So if I didn't pass math right now, I would know I didn't pass it by a lot or a little. That's all I would know. In 2014, I'm going to know geometry is an issue for me. Algebra 1, I've covered.
12: But Valerie Ashley says most of her students don't even have basic keyboarding skills, and she's struggling to raise money to buy more computers for them to practice on. There's also high-speed internet access costs, virus protection. She wonders whether she'll be able to maintain her tutoring program next year.
10: I'm not trying to be like Chicken Little, but there are so many things that are unknown, unanswered, but they all have a dollar
12: sign attached. Licesta Johnson with Academy of Hope says she's not against raising standards, but there are so many changes with no support or resources to scale up. There's
9: not one adult educator that says, we don't need to do this, but the system isn't ready
12: for this exam yet. In contrast, when the K-12 through system increased standards, district schools got four years and millions of dollars in federal funds to help prepare for the change. One D.C. school for adults has closed its English GED program for a year, partly because its leaders want to see what the new test looks like. Others are pushing students to take the GED test before the changes next year. Many adult educators say the GED test is changing so fast with so little information because the students who will be affected are already so beaten down they're not likely to advocate for themselves. Would this be happening, they ask, if we were talking about the SATs? I'm Kavita Caduza.
0: Next week in part four of our series, we'll visit a DC school working with immigrants and find out why learning English is such a challenge for these newcomers. Up next, rocking out with ugly purple sweater. So it's kind of like your anthem, like your unofficial anthem? Yeah. I
8: was going to make a really preposterous comparison, um, which is that it's like our creep by Radiohead, but obviously there's some distance between us and Radiohead.
0: That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are looking back and bringing you some favorite stories from the Metro Connection archives. In just a bit, we'll hang out with a guy who spends his days among the soaring spires of D.C.'s National Cathedral. But first, we're going to kick off this part of the show with some music.
8: Let's do the other new one. Maybe we'll do it slightly more proficiently. (laughs) This is practice. This is rehearsal. It's not
0: supposed to be perfect.
8: Usually our practices aren't Also on the radio. We're in a
0: cramped Tacoma Park basement with ugly purple sweater. A band whose five members not only were born in the D.C. area, they also sing about it.
8: We never practice this song, ever.
0: This particular number is called Jumbo Slice, and it's written about, yes, the well-known eatery on 18th Street in Adams Morgan. Lead vocalist, guitarist, and keyboardist Sam McCormally says Jumbo Slice has more or less become Ugly Purple Sweater's unofficial anthem.
8: I was going to make a really preposterous comparison, um, which is that it's like Our Creep by Radiohead, but obviously there's some distance between... Us and Radiohead.
0: The ever-humble McCormally says he wrote Jumbo Slice shortly after moving from the suburbs to D.C. proper, before he really understood the scene or got to know that many people.
8: It's in particular about me being there the pizza place on 18th Street, late at night not having very much to do, watching people walk by, and just sort of feeling very resentful at sort of the world.
0: And yet the song has a playful, upbeat feel to it, as McCormally sings of, as he puts it, all the staffers and hipsters comparing the size of their big, long resumes and cooking lamb shoulder and greens. But while Jumbo Slice hails back to 2009 and is one of the band's first songs about D.C., the city gets a whole new treatment in a tune from the just-released EP, D.C. USA. So it obviously references the D.C. USA target complex on 14th Street. McCormally's wife, Rachel Lord, is another member of Ugly Purple Sweater. I play keyboard and banjo and melodica and sometimes say Can you say that again? Melodica? Melodica. Yeah. Yep. It's like the plastic easy version of an accordion. Anyway, Lord says DC, USA isn't just about the gigantic shopping center in Columbia Heights. It's about what was on that space prior to the riots in
11: 1968. Dear
0: When Sam and I first moved to town, we lived a couple blocks away from there
5: before it was built. From my understanding, the building that was there previously burned down in the riots. And then it was just sort of an empty field that had a gate up around it until the Target was built. So remembering... That space was something else before the target. I
0: think it sort of was an idea we were trying to, to sort of play with. Granted, Sam McCormally says development can also be fantastic for the city. It can bring in revenue. It can create new jobs. But he says as you develop, you got to be careful about erasing all sense of place and history.
8: I remember seeing this banner over a construction site, and the poster said, "When we're done with this place, you won't even recognize it." which I think they thought meant to sound promising, but it also sounds like a threat. Like, it sort of sounds like what you say before you beat somebody
0: up. Now, not all of Ugly Purple's Sweater's songs reference D.C. Some tunes are far more far-flung, like Roatan, a wistful ballad named for an island off the coast of Honduras. I went there once and then wrote a song about it.
8: And then, after we posted it, the Roatan New Times got in touch with me. And they're like, we're so happy that someone wrote a song about our island so we did a short interview with them
3: we really easier. would
8: like a uh, all expenses paid tour to the Caribbean <laughs> paid for by the new road 10 times but they haven't taken us up easy
7: there's <laughs> no hustle or just
0: In case you haven't picked up on it yet, Ugly Purple Sweater's music, this is like a terrible question to ask musicians, but I'm going to ask it anyway, how would you describe your music? Pretty much defies genre.
7: Wide net rock.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Will McKinley Ward sings backup vocals and plays the guitar, and he admits that, yeah, the band's sound is kind of all over the place.
8: There's a lot of different stuff going on. It's a uh, pretty wide net for what we're willing to play and uh, what we enjoy to play.
0: And that, says Sam McCormally, is actually the point of Ugly Purple Sweater. It's also tied, believe it or not, to the band's rather distinctive name.
8: I had this Ugly Purple Sweater, and a bunch of my friends said it was the ugliest thing that they'd ever seen, but I really liked wearing it. And I think the reason I named the band after it is that the band was sort of my attempt to get out of my head about writing songs. For a long time, I was trying to write songs in a, one genre or another genre. I was trying to write a punk song or a new wave song, and nobody really seemed to like them very much, including myself. And so I was like, I'm going to try to just write songs that I like and not worry about it too much. Sort of like, I'm going to wear this sweater because I like it and not worry about what other people think.
0: As for what became of that ugly purple sweater, well, McCormally says it eventually fell victim to an experiment gone awry.
8: I attempted to turn the ugly purple sweater into an ugly purple sweater vest. But it ended up looking sort of like a Viking basketball jersey. <laughs> and that was the end of that.
0: Luckily, though, it wasn't the end of the band. This homegrown assortment of banjos and keyboards and melodicas, with its wide net of genre-defying tributes to the city it's always called home. They
7: are in the size of that big, long resumes. And how many films that you quote, do you think she
0: Ugly Purple Sweater plays its next gig on May 2nd at Club Heaven and Hell in Adams Morgan. For more on the band and to hear a bunch of their tunes, visit our website, MetroConnection.org. We can
7: bike down to the bar. They got great ale all tap this year. They got a local DJ. Or if you are tired, then we'll cook lamb. Shoulder and greens. We can talk and talk and talk It's talk talking talk and 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 and talk and
5: We
0: end today's show with our regular series, D.C. Gigs. A few months back, we introduced you to Joe Alonzo. He's a stonemason with the National Cathedral, and he's been doing it for nearly 30 years. And after the earthquake that shook the D.C. area about two years ago, Alonzo joined the effort to rebuild the parts of the cathedral that were damaged. Jocelyn Frank met up with Alonzo, who explained what it's like to construct and reconstruct some of our city's most iconic structures.
2: A mason is, uh, I guess, one of the oldest professions on earth, right? <laughs> Second oldest profession. You know, you know what the first oldest was. My name is Joe Alonzo. I'm the head mason here at the National Cathedral. Every one of these pieces of stone that you see here is pretty much hand cut, hand made, fitted together by hand. Uh, I'm always amazed by it. All these arches and columns and just this incredible work all around me and uh, just a tremendous amount of skill and effort goes into building something like this. You know, everywhere you look, this—you know American history, everywhere. I walk by a couple interesting things. Of course, this is the tomb of President Woodrow Wilson. He's the only president of the United States buried in the District of Columbia. And then up above here, this is probably the most famous stained glass window in the cathedral. We call it the space window. It looks like outer space in the heavens, and you see that big red circle up there and the little dark disk in the center. That's a sliver of moon rock, actually, that was brought down by the Apollo 11 astronauts and presented to the cathedral. My dad was a mason. As a kid, I would go around with him and and help him on his side jobs. So I've been around brickwork, stonework, mortar, all that stuff since I was a kid. Right out of high school, uh, I was fortunate enough to get an apprenticeship in the stonemasons union here in Washington, D.C. D.C., of course, is a great stone town. All the magnificent structures, monuments, buildings, you know, (laughs) block by block. You see, every one of these steps is an individually cut block of stone, and you see how it forms the spiral as we're going up. For a stonemason, at least in my opinion, the cathedral is the ultimate late 1984. Early 85, the West Towers were still being built, so it was the opportunity to be a part of the final phase of construction of the cathedral. And uh, September 29, 1990, President George H.W. Bush was here. I was up on the scaffold, lowering that huge finial onto the base there, setting the final stone on the cathedral. 83 years to the day, I think to the hour that the first stone was laid, the highest uh, highest point in D.C. One more padlock to go. Ooh, little breezy up here. This cathedral is in such a prominent spot in the skyline of D.C. I mean, look, what do you see when you're up here sticking out the most? You see the cathedral, the Washington Monument and the U.S. Capitol. When you look up at these pinnacles now, what's missing is about 16 feet of stone, pieces that were shaken so badly in the quake. It was unbelievable. And now the cathedral has this massive scaffold around the top of its tower. And this pinnacle rotated tremendously in the earthquake. As if a giant hand just took it and rotated it counterclockwise several degrees. All these chunks coming out, and we've got to rebuild you know this building is such an important part of the city and of the nation i've been on it now for 27 years and it's a part of me i mean look we're almost 300 feet up in the air and look at all the beautifully carved little angels i mean look at their little noses and eyelids and all of that it's every one of these pieces of stone was hand carved you know we want to put it back the way it was and uh and we will
0: That was Joe Alonzo, head stonemason at the National Cathedral, speaking with reporter Jocelyn Frank. If you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should feature on the show, let us know. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Everybody's working
2: for the weekend. Everybody wants a new.
0: And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kivita Cardoza, Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, and Jonathan Wilson, along with reporter Jocelyn Frank. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online any old time. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you our annual look at Global D.C. We'll head to Fort Meade for a class in global communications, military style. We'll hear about a new documentary challenging the idea that Chinese culture has disappeared from D.C.'s Chinatown. And we'll bring you the latest in our LC Diaries series as we follow a Maryland family sailing around the world.
12: The houses are built on, many of them are built on stilts out over the
0: water. You can't even see land, other than you know there are a few palm trees and a few trees sticking up. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.